Welcome to Human First. My name is David Tilston, and this podcast explores the methods, habits, and processes which allow us to excel as human beings. My aim is to utilize the experience and knowledge of experts from a wide range of different fields and to translate these into easy to follow principles that can be adopted by you to improve your life and those around you. Today, I welcome Joe Hedger to the podcast. Joe is a four times ISA international tree climbing champion, so that's world champion. She's also a five times European tree climbing champion as well. I've been fortunate to work with Joe over the last four to five years and have seen massive improvements in many different factors along with her training, her lifestyle habits. And I think it's been an incredible episode for those that not only run a business, but also those that are involved with physical practices and who are looking for more longevity and overall health. Let's get into it. Joe, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining me today. Absolute pleasure to have you on here. How are you? Very good, Dave. Nice to be on here. Thank you for asking me. You are welcome. It's um, it's something I want to do for a while, actually, partly because of the area or the industry you're involved with. And yeah, many different aspects of that. So during the podcast, I'm keen to dive into a few different areas of your life, one being your career, competing at an international level. Uh, we won't go into all the awards you've got already, but... Um, we can get into that at some point, managing a business and your life habits. And yeah, if you could explain what you do as a career, I think that'd be a good start and how you got into it in the first place. Yeah, definitely. I'm a arborist, uh, it's a posh name for it. So most people know us as tree surgeons. So I basically climb trees for a living, which sounds really fun to most people when you start talking to them about it. And I do everything, anything to do with trees, basically. So tree care from planting initially to pruning trees, um, taking trees down when they're dead or dangerous. And primarily I'll do domestic work. So trees in people's gardens um, and a small amount of commercial work in larger settings um, all around here in the south coast. So that's the south coast of England for anyone that's not in there. He's not actually living it, but um, yeah. So prior to meeting you, I think this is the uh, this is the other thing I wanted to dive into is um, I think your competitive aspect or the competitive side of what you do is really interesting as well. So I'd never heard of competing in what should, I'm sure you can explain more about this in a second, but what you're involved with. So what do these events consist of, and could you also go into what you've achieved within the competition standpoint at an international level? Yeah, I think um, anybody you talk to about anything, there is a competition for it, except it's just not sort of well known. So it's definitely to do with what I do is uh, tree climbing competitions. It's not well known to the outer world because unless you're in that, that industry or that sport, it, because it's not majorly sponsored, it's not televised. Um, so I kind of found it by accident. I was... Um, well, funny enough, actually, I actually started doing pole, pole climbing. So a lot of people have heard about pole climbing, where basically it's just a great big tall pole, about 80 foot tall, and you have spikes on your feet and you just basically run up the pole. Um, and I used to do that at the New Forest Show, so nice and local to us. And it was just something that I came across because somebody I worked with at the time uh, was entering the competition and said, do you want to come along? So I said, yep, sure, let's go along. Did it. And I did it for a few years, did quite well at it. Um, this was a long time ago. This is probably back in 2005, maybe, I think, 2004, 2005. I did it for a few years and loved it. 
to a point, but it wasn't anything more challenging to it. I'm, I'm kind of, I'm one of those people that needs constantly challenging. So to me, once I'd achieved the goal of running up the pole as quick as possible, it kind of lost its um, appeal, shall I say. But when I went to those competitions, I met a friend who actually is actually now a very good friend of mine who said that he was going to a tree climbing championship. And I was like, oh, this is really interesting. And he didn't live, live that far away. He was in Salisbury at the time. And um, Stuart Wett, in case he's listening, he, uh, he influenced me and showed me about the, the tree climbing championships. So I did my first tree climbing competition in Wales in 2005. No idea, actually, was it Wales? It might not have been Wales, actually. It might have been the English championship, but it was in 2005. And same thing, turned up, no idea. This is obviously before the, inter the internet with like Instagram and YouTube and stuff. So I had no idea what I was turning up to. Um, and if I'm honest, I went with the idea that I probably wasn't gonna enter or compete. My name was down, but you know, I was, um, I was very young. I'd only been in the industry a few years, no idea what I was doing. And I just went for some fun with, uh, with a couple of friends. And I turned up with my little bag of really basic equipment and we went straight up to the tent do you want to sign in and I was like uh, yeah all right let's sign in and I did it um and it was probably the best experience I've had because I was rubbish absolutely horrendous but there were five events and I got disqualified out of four out of the five and uh scored very lowly on the on the fifth one why did you get disqualified, Joey? Um, well, first of all, there are rules, and I didn't know there were any rules. <laughs> um, some, of the, some of them I timed out on, purely because I was so slow. Um, so some of the speed events, you were only given a certain amount of time, so I was too slow on those. And some of the events, you had to stay within like a safety zone or a target zone and some of my equipment went out of it or I dropped some equipment. Um, but what that, what that competition did is it actually showed me what people could do athletically to do with trees. So before that point, I'd always gone to work, climbed a tree, been given a task, had a chainsaw, had some ropes, cut the tree and went home. And it was more of a, a job. And then when I went to the competition and I saw some of the UK's best tree climbers, I was like, wow, they're actually, they're athletically moving through the tree. You know, they're making big swings and they can, they can move, they're landing and running. And I don't know, it just really opened my eyes. And so rather than leave that competition disheartened and thinking, oh, I wasn't very good at that. I came away and thinking, you know, I really want to do that. I really want to learn how to do it. So um, yeah, that was just the, the start back in 2005. So it's almost like an Olympic Games for arborists, isn't it? And people that are in your sector that are interested in, in that sort of thing, would that be a way of describing it? Like different events? Can you specialize in a particular event or do you have to do all of them when you're there? Um, so the most common event or competition as such as a, as, a, as a whole is called the ISA. So it's the International Society of Arboricultures. They organize this. So it's almost like saying the Olympics. And the event or the competition is the same wherever you go in the world. So you can go to Hong Kong, France, wherever, and the format would be the same. So you have five uh, prelim events, 
and you have to do all of the five events. And then once you've done the five events, uh, usually on the second day, they'll take the, the top number of climbers and they'll, they'll go into a final, like a master's. And anyone can enter. So in theory, I've had, I've had people in the past say, you know, do I have to be an arborist to enter the competitions? And in theory, you don't have to be. Obviously, there's a safety factor. You have to know what you're doing to be able to clip in and tie the knots and stuff. But I've always said I could probably take somebody that wasn't a tree climber and teach them to do the preliminary events because it, they're basically a sporting event. It's no different to any other sport. But where somebody that didn't have the knowledge of a tree climber, they'd, they'd fall down in the, in the masters because a lot of it's brain training. You have to be able to make quick, snappy decisions because of your experience in the tree. And that would be very hard to teach someone without them spending years in a tree. So that'd be like that muscle memory as well for line work. So working with ropes, rigging things up very quickly, that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah, okay. definitely. I mean, you know, when we're at work, you have to make very quick decisions. You don't actually realize you're making them that what the thought processes are or, you know, even simple things like how you're throwing a rope or how you're grabbing it to tie it. Um, there's just a lot of things, like you're saying, muscle memory that come with, with experience and time. So that would be hard to teach someone. But going back to those um, five events, everybody has to do the five events. And two of them are speed events. So one is a speed climb. So literally you start from the bottom of the tree. It can be any height, obviously depending on where you are in the world, depends on the species of trees, but it's literally a, a vertical race from the bottom to the top. Um, safety din, they give you like a little belay harness. Um, you have a little belay line and uh, so you're safety in the whole time, but it's probably one of the, the freest events, if that makes sense, the closest mm. you could be to free climbing. It's really natural. Um, it's not, it's argued in the event that it's not related to what we do at work because we very rarely just run up the tree. However, I think it's a very valuable skill that I've learned to love. I used to hate it. I never used to like that event. I was like heavy, slow, like <laughs> sluggish um, because I never really practiced it. But over the last five years in particular, I've sort of concentrated on movement a lot more. And um, it's probably one of the freest events to how somebody can move in a tree safely without falling out, if that makes sense. Um, and watching some of the people, their, their reactions and how they can bounce from limb to limb is incredible. So. Um, so that's the, the speed climb. Then there's a, another speed event called the ascent event. So it's literally a, as quick as you can get up the rope using any recognized uh, equipment techniques. So that's a, another vertical race. There's a throw line. So targets are in the tree placed around at different heights and how you would get your ropes up into the tree. So that's a timed event, uh, but accuracy and how you deal with stress. That's a really good one of how you can manage your mind because six minutes while somebody's standing there with a stopwatch is quite stressful. Um, aerial rescue. So this is probably a very valuable task for us as arborists, how we would carry out a rescue at work. So when somebody was in trouble, so we have to demonstrate different skills and abilities and how we would communicate with emergency services. So that's a bit more of a role play um, event. And then the last one, which is everybody's favorite, is the work climb. So 
the tree's all been cleaned out. It's got nice swings and there's different targets in the tree. And basically you start at the top of the tree, fastest to the ground, achieving all the targets as quickly as possible. So it's, it's, a, it's a good mixture between speed and ability and mind, I suppose. Is that over one day or a couple of days? That's usually one day. Um, at international now, when, you, when we go to the Worlds, um, they now have split it between two, just purely because there's just so many people. Mm -hmm. There's maybe about 80 competitors, so they have to split them between the two days. So is it very similar to, say, uh, like an Olympics or a European Cup, whatever it might be, it moves around every year, so you get a different country each year that hosts it? Primarily, or traditionally, it was, um, it was started off in America. So it's an American sport with American history. And every year it was always in America. And then they started moving it around because the whole concept of it being international was the fact that they were getting people now from all over the world competing. So yeah, it's moved, it's moved around each year. Um, traditionally, it's around about June or July, but depending on where it goes, goes in the world. So for example, um, it went to Florida and Texas for a few years and it's extremely hot there in June and July. So <laughs> they were obviously quite, um, quite pleased to try and move that for anybody like uh, the English that can't cope quite so well in the heat. <laughs> so they moved it like to April and stuff. But yeah, generally it'll move around. Um, it was in the UK, I believe in 96, before my time. So it was in Birmingham, I think it was in 96. Uh, it's, I've been to Australia with it as the international. Um, unfortunately, last year, it was supposed to be in Copenhagen. Um, so it'll obviously move again there. So they tend to do a couple of years in America and then every other mm -hmm. couple of years, they'll move it somewhere else. So obviously there's, there's different, so the genders are split, aren't they? So you've got male and female categories. Are they then merged? And the other question I'd have for you, so obviously you guys competing against each other for overall standings, but equally, do you see significant differences within that environment between say male competitors and female competitors? So as it stands at the moment, you have the same events and the women do the same events as the men, but on the score sheets, they, they score it separately. Now, if you go to a very small competition um, where there's only, let's say, one or two female competitors, they will usually chuck the female scores in with the males. Now, for me, I've always loved that because when you're competing at anything, you're only going to get better if you are always trying to strive to get to the, the best person. So in my point of view, I always want to try and be as good as, as the male climbers. Some, some very small competitions that I went to and they never did that. And I was literally competing against myself. Those events, I never, I never really, I never gained a lot from them. But when you get to international level, because there are a lot more of us, there'll be say um, 20 females. Now bear in mind 20 females compared to 50 or 60 guys. So you can see there's obviously a, a difference in uh, numbers, but you've got more females than you are. You feel like you're competing more, if that makes sense. A few years ago, um, or up until a few years ago, they had the females had let's say bonuses so they would do the same event but they were given extra time now I know I understand historically why they did that 
because they were trying to encourage more females into the sport. As an industry, there aren't many females in the industry, which is another whole subject on, on, in its own. But in order to encourage women to come and compete and not feel like they were pressured and not competing with the guys, they were given extra time bonuses and things like that. Mm. And, and to start with it, it, you know, it worked. And when I started competing, that was the, that was the thing. But the same thing, if I had an extra two minutes, I never felt like I was finishing yeah. when I should, you know, I, you're not pushed, if that makes sense. You're not always doing the best of your ability. Um, and a lot of the female competitors are very split down the middle. Some like the, the, the extras, not from a not from a benefit point of view but more of a they feel more relaxed in that environment if they're given a bit more time and they're trying to progress but then at the top end of the female competitors the you know we're all striving to be as quick as possible and be the better you know be the best that we can we were like well why do we need extra time yeah. we can do it just the same as the guys um so I think that must have been about four years, maybe five years ago, they changed that. So we do everything the same. Oh, nice. The, on, the only difference is they still score us separately only because the speed events. Because men are, men are always going to be athletically, uh, you know, they're, they're built differently. They're going to be quicker mm. when it comes to explosiveness. And, and the speed events, like the, the speed climb where we went straight up the tree to the top, the, the men are always going to be not a lot, but a bit quicker. So in order to try and level the field out, they basically give us our top points against the guys' top points, if that makes sense. So, Yeah, do you, do you think as well, because your industry is primarily, um, it, there are more men in your industry, aren't there? So, so do you think that because the pool is bigger to select from and because there's more people probably involved in it, the, um, how would you say, the challenge is, is more um, more prevalent for female competitors, like they almost because the the pool you're drawing from is slightly smaller. It's almost like you have to really commit to these things as well because there's so many men in these events that are probably interested in competing at a high level. Yeah, the uh, the main problem is is that we don't have a, f a constant feed of new females in the industry. Um, obviously, tree tree surgery or you know um, tree climbing historically it's not a female job. Um, for many reasons nowadays it is when I say easier you know it is a hard job we're working in all weathers you're lifting heavy stuff um, you know it is it is hard work but technology of our equipment and the chainsaws and the equipment that we're using is a lot e you know it's a lot easier for us to use and it's obviously easier for the guys too don't forget <laughs> it's not just for the, for, the, for the women there are a lot of guys that struggle just as hard I'll yeah, tell guy, you that. guys aren't using band saws and yeah. using chainsaws yeah <laughs> but um so there's always been less females in the you know percentage to men so when you try and then make a sport out of it you've got a lot less, like you're saying, in the pool of numbers. There's a mm, lot less mm -hmm. in that pool than there are the guys. I also think as well that the term competition puts a lot of people off, not mm -hmm. just females, mm -hmm. but, but guys in as well. But I know a lot of women that say they'd like to do it, but they don't like being, you know, you have to have, whatever, whatever sport you do, you do have to have a competitive edge. 
um, women are very good at it and women are very, very competitive. You only have to look at other sports, but I think it's only because it's not a sport that's known as yeah. such. You have to be doing it as a job, um, which is a shame. It's, it is changing, but it's just, it is quite slow just to get the numbers up. I think that's what's interesting though as well from my perspective that anyone could get involved in this if they had the attributes to want to compete in something so I mean I mean how many things have we ourselves got involved with uh, as individuals or know of people that got involved in different things that are completely out of the box that are really interesting when you actually get into them so I going back to the events that you mentioned there seems to be a lot of attributes like movement attributes mental attributes um, tackling stress like those deadlines that are prevalent for many people of us, regardless what environment we're in. And I can see now as well uh, how, if that was an involved in like um, an incident at work, if you can get very fait with these different drills and you get used to sort of dealing with heightened stress levels, that if an incident was to happen like an injury, you're probably more prepared, more equipped to deal with these things. Whereas if you're always, again, taking it easy and you're not sort of exposing yourself mentally and physically to these aspects then you're always going to be on the back foot when something does happen that's slightly out of your comfort zone yeah i think going back to your first point about um it being a competitive sport you know like it's like anything you would you would come across a sport or see something on the olympics or anything on tv and you think oh i'd like to give that a go and then you get into it and then you realize you know the the fundamental points about any sport are pretty much the same you know you have to have a good mindset you have to want to commit put the time in basic movement all of those things um it's just a shame that to do with the tree climbing people don't know of it as a sport as such um what you're talking about is interesting because i've come i've come at it the almost the wrong way around and i would probably guess that most of the people in this tree climbing sport have also come at it back to front. So we've all gone into this sport because we do it for a job. We don't see it as a sport, we see it as our work. So we climb a tree for a living and we take those principles and we go and have fun for a weekend, we hang out with friends. Um, it's great fun because the trees are fun and we haven't got chainsaws and the equipment we're using is nice and light. So it just feels really fun. So it doesn't really feel like a sport that you would train for as such. Whereas I've been doing it now seriously since about 2008 and probably in the last three or four years, I've actually looked at it the other way around and looked at, well, how can I apply, you know, what, what is my mind doing when I'm at these events? You know, is sometimes you do really well and sometimes you won't. So what, what is that? Is it, is it the way that you're dealing with the stress? Is it how you're dealing with stuff that's happened outside of the events? Um, you know, your movement. I've never, ever thought about how I'm moving in the tree, ever. And then obviously started training with you. I'm now aware of what we do from a, a fitness point of view. My awareness now is when I'm in the tree, I'm like, oh, you know, how, how am I, where are my feet? And where is my center of gravity? And when I'm making the swing, uh, you know, am I leading with the head to, you know, increase the, the swing and the energy and the weight, just little things like that. I've never actually had to think about it like that. Um, whereas any, I would imagine any other sport that you get into with a trainer and a coach, 
you would start off on that path. You would have to think about those things. So I found that very interesting kind of doing it back to front, if that makes sense. So, yeah, I mean, we haven't gone into this yet, but obviously we met, I think it'd be about four years ago now, we're now four, maybe five. Um, I've been training consistently. Uh, initially, it was for mobility to improve your mobility. The thing is, Joe, as well, it's, it's the amount of commitment uh, and dedication you put into your practice. So you take something, you go away and work on it. So we can all take uh, anything. You can take a paintbrush and you could use it once, but if you do it every single day, you start to learn how to use it better. It's just like any piece of equipment, chainsaw, whatever it might be. And that's the difference. So when obviously you were practicing mobility, I remember you saying you start to see big improvements in your ranges of motion, the ability to reach. Uh, this is prevalent in climbers that seem to get into a lot of flexibility, mobility type training. And they tend to see differences in the way they climb because they can step further. They can use their legs more instead of heaving themselves up the wall which I think obviously makes a big difference and probably transfers well into your environment. As time went on, because of the influences that I've had, we were looking at, uh, for anyone who's listened to the last podcast with uh, Angelo and other people I've been involved with over the years who I've learned from, it was very much about looking at the attributes contained within these different things that translate well into everything. So if, again, if you can sort out your center of mass, if you are jumping between different things, it's going to make a huge difference if you can land exactly where you want to land because it's like a little laser dot on the floor and that's exactly where you place yourself. And I think that's a huge thing. Um, yeah, I've definitely seen the way you move now is very different. But my next question was actually going to be, how have you found that has reflected or shown itself both at work and in the competitions? So more so in say the last three years, three or four years. So let's start with work. So I wasn't doing any, any kind of remedial work outside of my day-to-day -day work. So on my body, I mean. So um, when you first start this industry, everyone says to you, oh, you, you know, you need to find another job by the time you're in your mid-30s because you'll be broken. And obviously in your 20s, you're invincible and you say, no, 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 I don't need to do that. And you don't stretch, you don't do anything. And uh, I just started to notice that my body was just, just collapsing inwards, like everything's better. Cause we're always hunched over. We're always using the same type of muscles because I wasn't really aware of how my body was working and how every single part is really important to make the next part work. Um, I needed to try and work out because <laughs> how I could fix myself because I was noticing that I was starting to suffer when I got in my 30s and I wasn't going to be one of those people that basically couldn't go to work because I love what I do so I used to so let's go back let's say about five years ago when I, I really noticed it I had a lot of issues in my elbows so a lot of tree climbers do elbows uh, shoulders uh, wrists um, for a number of reasons, but because we're just using the same muscles all on the same side, chainsaws, we're hunched, we're stooped, we're sat in a harness. Um, and it got so bad that when I was sleeping, I would wake myself up because the, the pain in the elbows just couldn't sleep. And I started thinking, yeah, this isn't good. So I've, I need to do something. I either need to stop what I'm doing, cut back. Um, I used to wake up 
sit on the side of the bed and think, oh, I can't move, I can't do anything. I couldn't even touch my knees, you know, like you try and bend over and touch your feet. So I was like, right, need to do something about it. So fast forward a couple of years after doing all the mobility with you, Dave, and being much more aware of what my body's doing and what's connected to each muscle and how they all play together. I've noticed my work is so much easier. So I'm getting older, so it should be in reverse. I should be getting worse, but because my, uh, I know how to engage my muscles correctly in my back when I'm lifting the heavier loads. I know, you know, rather than just like lumping the thing on your, on your shoulders and tossing into the back of the truck, you're, I'm a lot more aware. So injuries are a lot less because I'm much more aware of what my body's doing. Uh, flexibility is fantastic. So in the tree, like you're saying for like reaching or in a tight canopy where you've got to like scoot, un scoot under branches, no issues there. Whereas before you'd like either get cramps or you'd obviously tweak your back muscles. It's just a lot more enjoyable at work. It's, it's, it's be, and it's just really noticeable, you know, and other people that I, I work with have commented on how do I, how do I do the amount that I do without getting fatigued or get injuries with the muscles or, you know, so it's definitely a massive improvement. And then to do with competitions, it's a, yeah, it's a huge, everything, basically. Mind, my mind, actually, this is also for work as well. My stress levels are, I mean, everyone gets stress and I do get, you know, things happen. It, I don't let that situation or whatever it is affect my work. Simple breathing exercises that you've taught me, you know, when you get out of breath or the adrenaline is pumping, how I can deal with calming my body down to be able to concentrate on what I'm doing. Um, just, yeah, I, I think the benefits are huge. And I, I try and talk to a lot of arborists about it because I think it's a really important, really important key to what we do as a living and as a mm -hmm. sport. And I think arborists, people that do it as a, as a living are probably a little bit reserved, shall I say, and not want to look like they need help in their body, I suppose. I'm just generalizing here. They, they don't feel like they want to seek help. They don't want to find out what their weaknesses are and spend the time. That's the other thing. It's a lot of time and effort to, to rectify. I mean, I had to rectify 16 years of climbing. Um, it's quite a lot of time and commitment, but the benefits are fantastic. People that do the sport, um, competitive climbing, they definitely seem a lot more open mm -hmm. to, you know, what, what you can do with your body and your mind because they're doing it as, as more of an activity or as a sport. They obviously, you know, they may also have a, a background in some kind of other sports as well. I, th I think for the performance standpoint, that, that's one of the key factors, isn't it? When you've got times and you see maybe you're going to have a massage and then you've learned some breathing techniques and then you increase your mobility, if your time goes up by 10 seconds, it's a very quantifiable reading to say, oh yeah, this stuff works. Whereas for many people, if you, again, like you said, if you've got 16 years of patterns in your body, it might take four to maybe five years to, to start to unwind these things. And many people, especially because the way the, the health industry is, it's pushing people into like these four to 12 week programs. So if you don't see things, I mean, well, four weeks, you barely scratch the surface. It's more about awareness in the initial stages, and then it's a, a, a case of the other stuff. I didn't want this to be, this isn't about sort of selling the methods um, 
I've been fortunate to pass on to yourself uh, over this time. It's more about trying to get across the concept that because we're human beings and because we're doing physical activities, if we do physical activities, there are always ways improving movement patterns. There's a way of improving our human performance. So using different tools, like you said, breathing, mobility, managing stress, increasing movement capacity. All of these things are going to play a huge part because if you are injured, that's it. Like you're like you said, you don't even sleep well. If you lose sleep, your immune system takes a hit. There's so many other things that are involved with this process. So, yeah, I, I do think that we all need to do something because if we want longevity, regardless of what we're doing, we need to, for some people, they don't move enough. So for some people, are sat still all the time, so they need to do, to do more movement. For some people, it's more a case of, yeah, my job is climbing trees all day. So you, ne you need to then find a compensatory pattern to not only improve the way you do that job, but also to counteract a lot of these patterns you're doing time and time and time again. And one of the big things we looked at as well was loading joints. So increasing range capacity, but also loading that joint. Because we tend to think, stretch more, stretch this, stretch that. But when we stretch something, it doesn't mean it's strong. So then we, we need to make sure that whatever range you've accessed, it's not gonna be a nice stretchy long weak pattern that you start to engage because then that's where injury can occur because there'd be no no reason for you to have these sort of well super wiry uh useless sort of joint patterns or, or ranges of motion so again it's it's very individual isn't it it's a very individual process what your story would be very different to uh say your husband's or somebody else's everyone's body's very different and it needs an individual approach there yeah but i think i think the human body is amazing because everybody's journey can be different, but anything that you ask of your body, you can't, maybe can't do it, but if you, like you were saying, like with the paintbrush, if you just keep doing it, it's amazing how, mm -hmm. how your body can improve and change, whether it be you know, flexibility, stronger mind, whatever it is. I, th I think and I, also those principles don't necessarily have to be just for me while I'm doing my my job because I may only let's say do tree climbing for another five years let's say or 10 years whatever it is but I won't stop doing what I'm doing that I've learned about how my body works because you know when I'm 70 I want to be able to bend over and pick up that thing that's fallen on the floor I want to be able to kneel on the floor or you know I'd love to be able to the old person that manages to dodge something that's flying towards them where everybody else is sort of falling over because they've 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 spent such a long portion of their life sat not not moving which i think is such a sad sad thing we worked through this haven't we because of your job there is a risk of things falling out of trees branches swinging down all this sort of stuff so some of our training sessions have been quite unorthodox if you look at it from a fitness approach sort of things not not saying I just throw random things at you when you turn up, but just looking at things that would be appropriate to being a human being. We are going to sometimes have to dodge traffic. We are going to have things that fall off a building sometimes or fall out of trees. It's just that is a human existence. To run on a treadmill consistently and lift weights in a sterile environment isn't very consistent with our human existence. But not to say it doesn't have any benefits, but we should, if we want an all-rounded approach, orientate our training to an environment, but also as a human being. And then we look at these other things. We do squats in the gym. We do all these other basic patterns that need to be looked at. Um, 
but yeah avoiding things coming towards you and hitting you or causing injury is a huge thing it's absolutely massive yeah and, and if you're not yeah. not training it you're not you're not aware that your body can do it or your mind can do it how you how you react but actually once you once you start doing that training um it's it just amazed me how much more my mind was alert and my reactions so if something was to happen whether it be at work or at home you know i didn't it's not like oh that that fell on the floor it's like oh i've caught it mm. and it, and it really shocked me how many times i've actually caught something like um you know you open a cup and something falls out and i've caught that thing and i'm looking at it going well that's weird before that would have fallen on the floor it'd been a horrible mess then i'd have got stressed and got annoyed and then <laughs> the day would have been ruined but because my my mind just literally put the hand out and caught it or you know you fumble it you manage to like slow it down or move it between your other hand i i, I think that that is a skill that we all have and we probably all have when we're young with you know as a child you watch children they they have they have great reactions and but something happens where we just kind of, I don't know, stick our mind in a box and and don't explore what we can actually do. Yeah, it's, it's, it's that said principle where we, we obviously, the more things we do, whether it's we sit all day, we, we become that. I mean, we've talked about this before on, on the podcast, but some of, some of the drills just to sort of dial into that so people can see how we break something like that down would be, to improve the ability to catch something or respond or react to something, we, we look at depth perception with the eye. So moving moving the eye or fixating on a, on a different point and then exploring what you can see in your peripheral vision. So you start to learn how to catch things without looking at it. You're looking off center or you're looking away from it and looking and using the, the depth perception that the eye has. Because if you were to put your hands by the side of your head, as an example, you can see your hands till it goes way past halfway or 180 as a crescent, you can see actually past that range depending on the shape of your head and various other bits and pieces. The other thing is passing things between your hands, throwing things between your hands, like hand-eye coordination, closing your eyes, being able to sort of pass a stick over the shoulder and catch it under the arm. All these different things, juggling with kettlebells, sounds a bit crazy to some that probably don't haven't witnessed that, but flipping a kettlebell on the swing, catching it on the way down things like that, there's timing, there's all these different things blending that come into these things. So I think it was really nice to work, it still is nice to work with you on these different things over the years because the more I see the attributes you need in your job, the more it's made me reflect on what I need to give to other people and, and different drills I can explore and how I can pull apart these different things and try and work on it. Sometimes I get it wrong, sometimes I get it right. And then that's just a from a coaching perspective, something that's been really interesting to dive into. So it's definitely been a learning process on my part as well. So that's actually led me into something. Performance is obviously a big thing uh, with where you've gone over the years. Nutrition, um, maybe a little bit controversial for some, but I think it's very important we talk about these because the differences I know you've seen um, can't really be, um, how do you say? They're very prevalent, they're very obvious. So could you just go into your nutrition journey? Uh, go as far back as you need to, uh, whatever sort of come up in the past, but what have you seen in recent years and why has, say, performance improved or have you felt like other different cognitive processes have improved, health in general? Okay, so um, there's, a, there's a thing about tree climbers that we need a huge amount of energy 
to do our job. So in order to do that, we just presume that you put chocolate bars down your mouth and you know lots of sugary sweet carbohydrates and 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 all of that so everyone does it and i did it and i started noticing when i was in my mid 20s that i was lethargic a lot of the time which is quite an annoying thing to happen to somebody that needs to be physical every day but i did notice just my whole being was lethargic I do my job but I wasn't there wasn't much energy there um I noticed that I was getting some injuries which was also part to do with my body and not looking after it from mobility point of view so that's partly to blame and I started getting um sort of stomach issues and and a lot of a lot of discomfort most of the time and I was just just something wasn't quite right so over the years from about my mid-20s I started trying to change a few things so I did the usual thing where you know um, I changed I took out of my diet diet things like dairy uh, which was really hard for me <laughs> I do like cheese um, so I took uh, dairy out then I tried um, carbo- you know carbohydrates but when I say that I didn't really try you know there wasn't I probably knocked out some bread and things like that and some potato and um, I wasn't very strict shall I say because I never had any direct guidance but I tried a few things and nothing really improved and then I what was the other thing I tried oh I then tried so about four years ago I tried cutting out meat because I was brought up in quite a traditional household, meat and two veg, and every meal had to have meat in it. So I thought, well, maybe I'm eating a lot of meat. So I cut out, I couldn't stop it completely. I didn't go full um, vegetarian, but I would probably say most of my meals were vegetarian, and then I'd probably eat meat once or twice a week. And things still weren't improving, and I was really tired and I would probably say that was probably the worst period of time as far as how I felt. Anyway, I kind of got to the end of my tether with, I don't know what to do. Maybe this is just the way it is, you know, talking to my (laughs) mum. She's like, well, that's just the way it is. You know, as you get older, you just have bad stomach and things happen and you just, just, that's it. Put up with it. I was like, oh, that can't be true. That can't be true. So. I actually it was after talking to you Dave about uh, Dom you met Dom and you just spoke to to me about it and said oh you know he he's got quite an interesting concept about um, going more carnivore with his diet and only eating meat or um, sort of local or in season fruit fruit or veg I was oh it's interesting so anyway I I was actually really intrigued by it so I did a bit of research, got in touch with him, and uh, this was just over two years ago, about two and a half years ago. And for me, it worked really well because I got in touch with him. You know, we went into a lot of detail about my diet and everything about my health. And so that was really good. And I need somebody to direct me. So because I got on the program with him and I thought if I'm honest I actually thought I'd only do four weeks so 
cutting out all carbs, all veg, basically cutting down to try and get to two meals a day and preferably one meal a day at about between the hours of 11 and one. I actually honestly thought I'd do four weeks of it. And after two weeks, I started to notice, I was amazed actually how quickly I noticed my change in my energy, my sleep, my sleep was like, my sleep has been amazing. So I've got to the end of the four weeks and I thought, hmm, this is interesting. I'll go a bit longer. So I did eight weeks and then eight weeks turned into 16 weeks. And then I worked with Dom a little bit before some competitions to really uh, try and get into tune with my body and what I was eating at what time and, and the volumes and things like that. Um, and it made a massive difference. Just my, my mind felt like the on switch had been pushed. The alertness, I used to get like a, you call like a brain fog. So maybe couldn't concentrate quite so well. I couldn't make decisions very quickly. That's all gone. My recovery time. So if I do get any in injuries or anything that happens, my recovery is literally, you know, depending on the injuries, like just a couple of days, which is crazy. I noticed just things like my skin, my nails, my hair uh, improved. And then all my sort of gut issues and discomfort all went. So I never stopped. So my diet now, which has been the same for two years, is um, primarily sort of like a more of a carnivore diet. So mainly red meat, so a lot of beef. You do have to eat uh, grass-fed. So I have to be quite fussy about where I get my meat from. I get it local, locally sourced as well. So it's not traveled from all over the world. And you do have to eat um, nose to tail. So I've had to learn to like liver, for example. That was quite a, yeah, a hard one to like. Um, kidney, I still have battles with the kidney. Um, kidney and liver. I'm, yeah. I'm still battling them myself. But it's... The, the, the kidney is the, I have to like wrestle with it in the pan, like to try and <laughs> convince myself I'm going to eat it. But heart, heart, is, heart is easy. I can eat heart. That's, that's an easy one. Um, so I've had to sort of, uh, I did a lot of experiments with different types of food, different types of the animal. Um, so primarily red meat, um, all types of fish, um, a small amount of dairy, like I'll have some um, full fat milk or full fat cream. Um, and sometimes I'll have like a bit of yogurt, maybe sometimes if I want something like a little bit of sweetness. Um, and very, very, very little um, fruit or veg, like almost like I could probably count the amount of fruit and veg I've had on, in, on one hand in the last two years but it will be seasonal local as, as possible if that makes sense but um, I don't actually need it because of what I eat from the from the beef mm -hmm. nose to tail so, so you're I'm going, going back you're effectively intermittent fasting for quite a long period of time in between meals so you're not snacking it's big big main meal and then giving your body a chance to digest it equally you're taking on significant amount of mineral it's very mineral dense food what, what you're eating as well because um, I, I think we tend to, to look at these types of diets uh, whether it's more carnivore animal-based if you want to call it that as well animal-based diet instead of plant-based 
Um, and we tend to think it's very much like uh, poor meat choices and this sort of thing. And, and that can occur. But personally, I feel those that are doing it in a more ethical way are looking at locally sourced food. So it hasn't got the huge carbon footprint. It's not being shipped from, I don't know, two, three thousand miles away in a significant amount of interference with humans having to move it between places and farming methods and all that sort of stuff as well. Um, so it's always interesting. I mean, it, Dom opened my eyes as well, as well as a couple of others, opened my eyes to, to looking at things differently. It's not a case of, uh, yeah, this this is an unethical way to, to move about this practice. Because, yeah, if you buy your meat from certain big chains of fast food restaurants, methods are different. It's not a case that it's just been farmed from two miles away by a local farmer who knows the, the produce, he knows the animal, he's, he's been rearing that animal for, for many, many years and using uh, sustainable agriculture to to bring that to to your plate effectively. So yeah, I mean, just going back to what you said as well, what would a typical day be? So a 24-hour period, your food, your first meal to your last meal, and then what type of things are you drinking during that time? Do you drink coffee? So a typical day, this is one of the hardest things for me to do because of my, my job. I had to kind of play with it a little bit because it's quite hard to eat your largest meal while you're on in someone's front garden <laughs> while you're at work um but I've managed to get around that so a typical day is I won't eat anything until on average till at least 11 a.m at the earliest most days it'll be about 12 to 1 1 p.m will be my first meal ideally I would like that meal to be my largest of the day but depending on the, on the day or the site or whatever, it's quite difficult sometimes for me to do that. So that would be my largest meal. Leading up to that point, I will drink uh, just water with one coffee at around about nine o'clock, something like that. That's my little treat, the coffee. I let myself have the coffee. You can't cut everything out of your life. It'd be boring otherwise. So yeah, um, water in the you know, uh, throughout the day, um, coffee in the morning, then a largest meal at lunchtime. So for example, at work, I, I just changed my habit. My habit was always a packed lunch, which was sandwiches and crisps and a chocolate bar. And I just had to change my habit to taking a little stove burner, um, little frying pan and two steaks and a knob of butter. That's it, you know, salt and pepper, that's it. So I have to say, I am, uh, <laughs> everyone is very jealous of it when I'm at work and I say well you can go and buy yourself a burner if you like <laughs> you can stick me the sandwiches but um yeah I'll 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 try and eat a larger meal in the middle of the day and then my last meal ideally I would like to have about six o'clock six p.m seven p.m sometimes it's a bit later only because of my lifestyle with my work and everything yeah, just uh, so usually to eat, I'll have one or two steaks a day, something like a ribeye, eggs, bacon, and then depending on fish, I sometimes have like side with some prawns or something like that. Or um, if I'm going to have one bit of fish like as a main meal, I'll get something a bit bigger, something like a sea bass or something. So what sort of fruits would, if you'd have fruits, would you include things like avocados? And um, I mean, do you ever have things like dates and that as well? Because I know dates are being used a little bit more in those circles. I don't think yeah. it's funny. I'll have it when I feel like my body feels like it needs it. 
it's the same with with uh, when I eat. So think, oh, I really need to eat something. So I kind of rather than say stick stick into a strict like schedule or timing or I can't do this and I can't do that. If my body feels like it wants something, then I'll I'll give it to it. So I may have a cooked breakfast or maybe have like a little bit of yogurt in mm-hmm. the morning. Um, and same thing with the with the fruit and everything. I don't. I actually thought that fruit was going to be the hardest thing to give up. I used to eat a huge amount of bananas and apples and I don't I just don't have that craving or that feel for feeling like I need to eat it I'll eat avocado I think avocados a good a good choice but I don't have a I don't have a huge amount I don't actually have a huge amount of fruit no I don't really have a huge amount of fruit sometimes I'll have something like dates um just just when I feel like I need it, just maybe for a bit more. And also they're a bit sweeter too. So sometimes you do get a little bit of a craving for wanting something sweeter. But that that was an interesting thing, really cu- cutting out sort of processed sugars. Mm. You initially have cravings for it. You know, before if somebody put a donut in front of me, I'd be like, oh, no, 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 I'm not going to have it. And then I'd be like, all right, I'll have it. I'll have it because my willpower wasn't there. And because mm. your, your body feels like it needs it. Whereas now... Literally, there can be a stack in front of me. I'm like, well, no, because I know how that, A, I know I don't need it, and B, I know how the, what the effect is of that, that product on me. I did an experiment, actually, funny enough. After one of the competitions, when I'd been very strict leading up to it, strict about what I was eating, how often I was eating, doing the fasting, like you said, um, you know, I wasn't drinking coffee. I was just drinking. Oh, that's the other thing I drink is uh, bone broth. Um, so I boil up the bones and make some good bone broth. So I drink that quite a bit. But leading up to this competition, I was I was quite strict. And I, when I won, so the last time I won the world championship, the next day I was like, right, there you go. I've done it. Don't have to do anything else for another 12 months. Well, I didn't know that COVID was happening, so <laughs> it was a bit longer than that. But um, we we all went out for for a big breakfast and a big lunch, and I basically treated myself like it wasn't like over the top, but you know there was a cinnamon bun, and I was like, you know what, I haven't had a cinnamon bun for a year and a bit, and I'm in America and I'm going to do it. And um, yeah, orange juice and coffee, and it just basically ate what I wanted to eat that day, and it was ho- like just. It was like having a, a hangover from food. It was it was awful. The amount of sugar and carbohydrates that I had consumed, not a, not a gross amount, just what I would have eaten before. But I was like, oh, I just can't can't deal with it. It took it took a good forty eight hours for my body to reset. And I've done that once or twice since. Just had the odd little thing, just to see if I can introduce certain things back into my diet. Yeah. Um, and I haven't missed them. It's amazing, isn't it? When you become more intuitive around your food, when, when you really step back and allow your body to sort of tell you how you feel with things and yeah, you do a bit of experimentation, you sort of find the food that work for you and then you do put that one food back in. I mean, I, I can attest to this as well. There's certain foods that I'll be offered on multiple occasions and I'm like, oh, no way, no way. Because I know however much... I sort of enjoy the taste for all of that 10 seconds, 20 seconds, whatever it might be, guarantee I'm going to feel horrendous for days. So it's not, and this is the other thing as well. I think sometimes it takes 
you have to go into that space to realize the difference because these subtle things that we pick up like the headaches or the lethargy or the gut inflammation or the IBS type symptoms that people experience on a daily basis, even things like inflammation on the joints. We talked about your elbows. That can all be brought on by sort of excess consumption of oxalates and inflammation in the body. All of these things contribute to these factors. So when you change your food, along with your movement, along with breathing and all these other different things, light exposure, these things can, can change dramatically. And then you do become more intuitive. Just like when I was chatting to Ryan Carter on episode one about these, talking about sun exposure and carbohydrates. In the summer, you may feel the need you want to have more carbohydrates. That's just part of the human process. In the winter, more fat. That's just a common intuitive way of looking at your food. Yeah, and that's, that is, that's just us being in tune with our body and being aware of it. Whereas society has made us eat three meals a day, snack in between um, each meal, eat the wrong things, and also think what is happening in our body as normal. And it's not normal. You know, you, you shouldn't, you know, if you're walking around and every time you eat, you get tired afterwards or you get, you know, bad stomach or like you say, inflamed on your, you know, joints, that isn't normal. It's only normal because everybody has it. But yep. as a as a human being, it's not that's not a normal process to feel that bad every every time you eat something or, you know, you do exercise and you just feel lethargic. That's not, you know, you're it's not yeah. good for you. I think association as well. Association with the norm doesn't necessarily mean it's a good thing, because if the normal is getting, how do you say, less resilient, and the problem is the more we rely on things, the more we rely on intervention, medical intervention, the more we rely on things to optimize our health the weaker we become if we always say the normal is this everyone has gut issues as they get older everyone gets more frail and falls over when they get old i mean don't get me wrong there are certain conditions that that come up that i know of that i've dealt with at a family level and close friends that sometimes these things do creep up on people and they can be things that can't be helped because somewhat very healthy people have strokes and things that, that come on out of nowhere Equally, what I would say is there are things we can do to constantly improve, to reduce the chances of these things happening. And yeah, the things you've highlighted definitely sort of allude to that. Yeah, I think just I think just people in general just need to be a, a lot more aware of what's what's out there and what what your body can do, I think, from a from a physical, physical, mental point of view. And, you know, your diet and what you put in your body, um, you know, even if it's a small change or something that can help you whatever it is like you say everyone has everyone does have issues or problems but I think if and you're not going to eliminate everything but I think I think people are too easy to jump to the oh the pill will fix me or the you know the operation will fix me you know maybe try to step back a bit and try and find out you know there are other things that I could do before you get to that point yeah and even if you have got to that point uh, another way of looking at it as well, I think, is that has basically dealt with the symptom of the problem, the underlying problem. So sometimes you have to say, right, that operation, I needed that operation because of what? What in my lifestyle, what in my body, in my the way I think about things, maybe I just need some mental uh, assistance because the mind is probably the most complex thing 
on this planet. I mean, along with our whole existence. So dealing with that will undoubtedly sort many other problems out. So it's very easy to say, yep, I need this pill for the rest of my life. But sometimes it's a case of this medical intervention is here to help me now. My job is to try and take a step back and try and do the work, do the work every single day to try and try and improve the reason so it doesn't get worse over time, but I can almost stop it in its tracks or hopefully progress and hopefully spend the, the next 20, 30, 50 years improving lifestyle instead of deteriorating slowly over time. Oh, yeah, definitely. I think um, I think that is 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 probably the problem is that people can't or don't want to invest the time in that you do have to sort of step back and try and spend some time and try and find out what the problems are because otherwise like you say you, let's say you have have an operation for whatever it is that that's that's a, a temporary fix and if you keep continuing with whatever it is that's the problem you know you may have to revisit that issue so yeah i think i think the human human body is fantastic and an extremely clever machine that i think we just take it to, for granted unfortunately in your industry in your um competitions and, and we haven't actually touched on this but it is in the show notes but sort of leaving it to this point but you have won four world championships five european championships and been the uk champion since you say 2009 yeah 2009 yep so so these things consistency in sport is a huge thing to look at some of the most uh, incredible tennis players football players the ones that are the legends are the ones that have continued to to operate at a high standard for long periods of time some people achieve very incredible things for two three years but the ones that continue they're the ones that are so interesting because it's a lot harder to keep consistent but it's that those daily habits isn't it that you continue to focus on because they prevent the injuries they keep you in the game and the ones that sort of peak quickly and then disappear, they're, they're not considered so much the legends of, of, of these different industries, these sports. Yeah, I think the first competition I won international was in 2008 and then 2010. And then there was a few years gap. And then I won again in 2014. And then there was a big gap of five years where I didn't win. And last one I won was in 2019. And what you're saying is is completely true because I am a much better climber uh, mentally and physically than I was in 2008. And if I was doing what I was doing in 2008 and 2010 now, I definitely wouldn't have won my last championship. And I had to find things to better improve myself, to keep going. And also what happens in, in any sport is someone's always biting at your heels. So whoever's, whoever's won something, they can never stay at the top because what that does is they actually encourage the next person. They inspire, you know, five people below them that are always trying to, you know, knock you off the top. But then what that does to you is that makes you better. As, you know, as a competitive person, that should keep spurring you on. And, and that's what happened to me. But what happened is I had to work out something wasn't quite right. My, my mind wasn't in the right place, definitely. I know that. And my, um, my physical body, although I was willing to do it, my just body wasn't cooperating. So that, that, that is a key thing. I didn't just stay doing what I was doing because I've only, I would have only done it once or twice because I had to grow as a person um, and as a competitor. I had to kind of 
change things really to keep growing i guess i mean it's really important change is that thing that requires a sort of reflection on where your ego is like how, how am i as a person am i willing to demolish my my pre-existing thoughts and my pre-existing patterns the p- person i think i am in order to take a step back and say do you know what i might need to completely redo this or i might need to start again or i might need to go back to the basics because as as angelo told me many times it's like the the advanced techniques are merely the basics mastered so the ability to go back and, and repeat those fundamentals time and time and time again is really important on one of the platforms the main platform being involved with with a natural edge one of our things is called the moving average the ability to constantly keep going like constantly improve but not be overcritical not be overcritical of what happened today versus yesterday but more looking at like a year what have i achieved this year have i improved and if i haven't because i i don't know i've gone backwards in terms of performance what have i learned from this process so it's all it's all part of that process the ability to chop change reflect reapply it if that doesn't work try again but you basically never give up is the fundamental story to that yeah change change is good a lot of people are scared of change but i think you should should be uh open to changes and and also um like you're saying like analyze what's not working and and change things you know don't be scared to to admit when something's not working or you're not doing your best and try and change things well that might actually lead into the next bit um two more questions one of which is you run a business obviously and primarily i'm guessing most of the the people that work for you are men how do you motivate a team it's not just for um, a male environment but the team in general to consistently achieve the standards you expect it's an interesting question really um lead by example is a is a good one um i'm very proactive in my business as in um so it's a tree surgery business and i still i will still go out and climb wherever i can obviously i have to have a lot more things i have to do so i can't go out every day as much as i would like to but you know, I still have a, a very active role in it. So, you know, my my attitude to safety and uh, customer care and, and, and how we look after the trees is really important. So I think if I'm doing that in front of them, that, that sort of is a role model that, that rubs off onto them. You know, they get a lot of good feedback. They get a lot of good interaction with the customers. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of positive attitude uh, in the company. Even, even if something goes wrong, years ago, like I said earlier, I would have got stressed, like small things would have really stressed, really stressed me out. And in this industry, things are always gonna go wrong. So it could be a machine that's not working during the day or um, you know, something's been damaged and you can't use it or the job's been changed or the customers canceled something. And there's a lot of stress there and I, th- and I think, that stress obviously rubs off on everybody else in the business as well unintentionally so outside of work being able to deal with how my mind works and how I deal with stress without realizing it has actually made a a much more relaxed environment at work in that sense Um, so much so one of the guys that works for me who's who's worked for me for 12 years uh, said to me not that long ago actually we just we were on a job site just together and we were having a bit of lunch and he said oh um said you're a lot calmer than you used to be and I said oh am I he said yeah I used to get 
kind of stressed and how, how have you dealt with that? You know, and I was like, oh, that's interesting to, you know, that he had noticed that um, such a change in uh, over the years. So, yeah, I, I, I guess it's just being present around the guys and um, being positive and just having that whole ethos, I suppose, around the whole company is, is a good thing. That's mentioned uh this before about like a selfish and selfish approach and that's definitely something you've highlighted there the ability to focus on your own practice your own self before sort of taking that into work because if you you don't do that work whether it's before or after work doesn't matter uh your food prep is obviously a big part of that you've got your nutrition set your movement um your sleep all of these different things come into the mix so then when you do go to work when things are a little bit haywire it's not like okay my food's out of whack. I don't know what I'm eating today. The food makes me feel tired. I'm moving poorly. I'm aching. My back is killing me. All of these different things. It's all going to contribute towards your your team's environment, surely. And things will cascade down as the boss. I'm sure for anyone in any job who's ever had a boss, if that person is highly stressed out, the whole team feels it. And if you've got a company of, say, 10,000 people, I'm sure it cascades down. Yeah, and that's something that I had never really thought about until a couple of years ago and I was a lot more aware of it so yeah not only your own stress you know people have their own stress from home whether it be kids or family or whatever it is so if everybody's coming into work and everyone's <laughs> stressed no wonder one thing happens and they all blow up so yeah. <laughs> and you guys obviously using pretty lethal tools as well so being stressed around those sort of things isn't a good thing not ideal last question Joe um as you know because I know you've listened to a few of the others to finish every podcast, I'm keen to leave the listeners with some simple routines that they can adopt and apply on a daily basis. What principles would be at the top of your list to form the foundations of human health, or in other words, a human first approach? We didn't talk about it very much, but definitely living more of a, an ancestral life. So what I mean by that is sunlight, natural light, getting outside as much as possible from sunrise to sunset trying to avoid sort of blue light in the evenings which I've been I have struggled with because I have to do a lot of office work I do a lot of laptop work um, that is something I've had to change uh, or adapt slightly but what that leads on to is getting a really good night's sleep sleep is super super important it just sets you up for the next day recovery is much better so by changing a few lifestyle habits, like I'm saying there, that will definitely improve your sleep. And then you'll probably find that other things like stress and everything are reduced. Definitely explore things that happen happening with your body. So from, um, you know, a, a diet point of view, you know, everyone's different. Everybody needs different types of, of, of food in, the, in their system. But try and really explore what, what your body needs. Um, it is the fuel at the end of the day that our body needs, you know, rather than just stuffing loads of stuff down there that we think we need. Just really look into it a bit, um, do a bit of research, be open minded um, about what you're doing, what you're reading and keep active really throughout your whole life. And to just take some basic principles of movement, breathing and mindset and just try and whether it's you do a physical active job like I do or if you do an office-based job you know try and find a way of incorporating it in your lifestyle and then do it till you're like 85 forever <laughs> there's a lot in that to unpack and 
it, it's consistency, isn't it? It's those little habits done every single day. And it doesn't doesn't need to be much. And this is something I wanted to get across with this human first approach. It can be five to 10 minutes of each of those done every day. And it will make such a huge difference. It could give you an extra 10, 20, 30 years, of not just years, but longevity, like vitality in, in those years. So you, you don't fade out so slowly that things uh movements limited for the last 20 years it's a case of maybe working up until your last day moving around that sort of stuff and then boom disappearing nice and quick again it's one of those things if we put those little little bits of effort in every day hopefully things life becomes that much easier and more enjoyable yeah and that's the key is life should be enjoyed shouldn't it you know we all have things that happen and how you deal with them but ultimately you know, we're here for a very, very short period of time and we just need to enjoy it. We shouldn't have to feel in pain and discomfort. You should just go out there and get in the sun. Sounds good to me. Joe, thank you so much for joining me today. Massively appreciate it. Have a great week. Thanks. Take care. Thank you for joining me on today's episode. To find out more about Joe, check out all the details in the show notes and I will see you on the next episode. <laughs>